0: Welcome to the podcast where heavy industrial industries meet the venture capital ecosystem, interviewing both thought leading investors and pioneering founders to better understand the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead for digital industrial innovation. Your host is Ty Finley and this is the Heavy Hitters Podcast.
1: Rick Balada joins us today from Pennsylvania. He's been involved in the industrial space all of his career with a broad set of roles in plant operations, industrial engineering, systems integration, key account sales, product marketing, product management, and other functions. He's also started and exited a number of successful industrial software companies, most notably Lighthammer and Thingworks. He's also held senior roles at companies such as SAP, Wonderware, Aviva, PTC, and most recently Microsoft. In addition to being a seasoned operator, Rick advises as an invested in a number of innovative industrial companies, including TwinThread, Tulip, Losant, MedCrip, Edge Impulse, and he's also an LP with various VC funds. Rick, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Zach. Good to be here.
1: Well, I I could not be more excited to have you specifically on here, Rick. Um, I could not think of a better voice to kick off the Heavy Hitters podcast series than someone who has both spent the last three decades helping define what is this machine to machine communication within industrial environments and now is actively investing and advising early stage companies on how to approach digital industrial innovation. Your your, stu, your story truly epitomizes why we launched the podcast to share these lessons learned. And I think the first episode is really going to help us set the stage nicely for all of our future guests and topics. So with that, we've got a lot to cover today, but uh, I covered your background really briefly. Can you give our listeners a deeper context on your background? Because I really do think it sets the stage well for the rest of our discussion.
0: Sure, that's um, that's fun to be here. I, you know, in general, I like to say that I have been doing the IoT before it was cool. Um, <laughs> in a lot of ways, what we've been doing, uh, I kind of started out in in plant operations, moved into engineering and and computing roles and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, um, you know, I, I would just say I've been in that industrial domain almost end to end of my career and. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to start off to see how the real world actually works. Um, you know, walking the floor and and working in um, in heat treating operations in a steel plant that informed my a lot of the things I've done in my life. In particular, the importance of people. Right? Everybody thinks we're in a technology field. Everybody thinks it's all about the the technology or the product. I learned early on it's it's way more about that. And then so if you kind of see a lot of the stuff I'm I'm involved in today. I would kind of think of them as collaborative technology, right, robotics, AI, things to help people um, do their job better. Um, But ultimately, I I think the other thing that I've been blessed and lucky enough to do is work for some great companies. I learned a ton from companies like Wonderware about the importance of of marketing and a a larger than life image and kind of that go to market machine being so incredibly important. you know, the, the, every, companies like SAP, Microsoft, literally, I mean, PTC, you're, you're learning something with each one of those. Um, and, and I advise a lot of, like, particularly folks coming out of a technology uh, undergrad, how important it is to get exposure to other skill sets, doing some time in sales, whether it's just a ride along or, a, you know, a real sales gig, uh, understanding what your marketing people have to do. So, again, I was, I was lucky enough to have had some exposure in kind of this um, fun toolbox of capabilities that I've, I've acquired over the years, and in, nowadays I'm, I'm um, using a lot of that and sharing a lot of that with uh, some of the companies I advise and mentor
1: love it and those are some very fortunate early stage companies to get to to take those lessons learned into how they're building their companies so sure. so maybe as as our listeners can probably assume from your background uh, digital industrial is not a new effort in fact i think those who are studying up on their industrial history if you will uh, know that the programmable logic controller or plc in industry jargon around since the late 60s when dick morley set us down that path with his work at gm so all that said um, we have undoubtedly seen a big rush of venture capital dollars into these legacy industries over just the last five to ten years alone what what has changed to spark this level of investment from venture capitalists
0: good question by the way i'm gonna i'm gonna do a little uh, dick morley aside i get to uh, see him talk at a um, advanced manufacturing research conference a number of years ago Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of paraphrase uh, parts of his talk and some of the things I do, particularly he started his talk and said, uh, the next hour, 80 percent of what I say is factual and 20 percent is bullshit. And I don't know which which, <laughs> So I'm going to leave it to you to figure that out. And so uh, let's qualify the rest of our discussion with that. That same. Uh, Love same it. We'll, we'll go with it. All right. So. Um, yeah, I think a couple couple factors. Um, probably a, 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 wa- a wave crashing on the beach from the whole big data uh, thing that we you know we went through a few years ago, where all the money was pouring into you know big data technologies, uh, data lakes, all that kind of stuff. And then probably someone opened their eyes and said, "Well, industrial companies have been generating massive amounts of data for a very long time." I mean, if you think about the accumulated data of a company of, of, of that a company like OSIsoft has generated, you know, in, for its customers and with its customers over their lifespan, it's it's almost unimaginable,
1: massive,
0: right? And it, it all it wasn't always kind of. Um, it's certainly a different kind of problem than dicing and Slicing accounting data, and we'll, I'm sure we will we'll dive into that in a lot of detail. But um, I, I, I my gut feels that that's what drove it, right? That um, a combination of that and then uh, comp- you know, every company nowadays is under increasing pressure for operational performance and uh, inter- you know, enterprise investments um, that might not be always the moonshots that, that a lot of traditional VC investors want. But there's been some pretty solid returns in this space and, and there, I'm certain there will be in the you know, not too distant future um, that I'm not going to say they're like I said they're not they're not without risk, but they're lower risk, perhaps, than some of the kind of, you know, B2C type moonshots. So things like, again, AI, ML, you know, data analysis in this space, uh, I think robotics is starting to see a lot of money flow in. Um, and, and interestingly, I even think that all of the, the industrial software heritage, the companies and people that spent time in, you know, the industrial automation world, um, they all all of a sudden have kind of a new life in this IOT world as well. So there's sort of an interesting crossover, um, both skill set and technology wise into the broader kind of connected everything world. Um, and, you know, the, the, I think all those dynamics together have, have brought um, just generically enterprise enterprise apps into a, you know, I'm not gonna say cool space, but interesting space <laughs> again. And, and uh, then, Figuring out how to harness that massive amount of data for, you know, operational improvement, new insights. Um, I, I think that's what's driving a lot of it.
1: Yeah, and maybe to the point about data, and, and we'll touch on it now just so we don't miss it. Back to your point around this, this isn't just clean accounting data or you know transferring in from another category in venture capital. Um, you know OPC, Modbus, communication protocols, everyone's got their yeah. own standard. Name, name your library of ways that data is being cleaned and scrubbed. Now, is that, is that the challenge to bring that Frankenstein architecture of data and standards together that, that maybe some assume is a little easier than it really is?
0: Well, i, I got to tell you, I've made a lot of money over the years because of that's <laughs> a problem, right? It's a it's a massive opportunity that those you know the debabblization of all these different uh, protocol. What's interesting, though, um, this is another one of those things that we have a tendency to lump it all into one big bucket. But in the uh, let's call it the inside the plant industry four O kind of IoT use cases. Um, the the non-practitioners think you're connecting up sensors and machines and you know you're oh this you know what's the temperature of the mixing vessel or the speed of the conveyor that's the data we're collecting but you don't typically connect to those low-level devices in a plant you're typically connecting to systems that are already aggregating and contextualizing that to some point right so you've got a SCADA system or you've got a historian or you've got a you know, MES system or something like that. Whereas when we go out to the kind of connected fleets of, of equipment, um, generally there, you are in fact going, you know, often you're going to some sensor or, or device um, out in the field. Um, and that, it sounds like a subtle difference, but it's actually extremely important that a lot of times it's a system to system connection problem in that, you know, pure industrial factory utilities kind of setting where it's, you um, more a connected device kind of scenario on the other side of the wall. So again, building out the knowledge of how to you know, crack open all these other systems to bring that to many, many streams of fragmented data together, that's a problem that a lot of companies have been working on for, you know, for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's, that's the key enabler, right? To get all these dissimilar data streams. Um, you talk to anybody that's a practitioner in any, any kind of data science or advanced analytics, and they'll tell you it's that upfront grunt work to reshape the data, to contextualize it, normalize it. That's that's like the major time suck for these kind of projects. So, um, yeah. And and we have, as you point out, increasing complexity because none of these systems are you know, are communicating in in similar manners with similar formats. Again, that's an opportunity, right? And that's one you know I've tried to address over the years with uh, Lighthammer and ThingWorks.
1: No, no doubt. And, and again, you don't just learn this stuff without being boots on the ground and and, and living in the environment. So uh, t- I agree with you 100 percent. Huge opportunity for those folks who uh, who really understand what the problem is. Yeah. Um, so, Rick, now to make sure we give credit where major credit is due. We've seen lots of legacy industrial companies undertake these these humongous digital transformation efforts over the last decade, some more successful than others. Um, from your experience, having lived really on all sides of this debate uh, as an industrial operator, you were within big tech, and then you're, you're even very engaged with the early stage startup investor community. What's the right approach? Is it OT industrial led, IT big cloud tech led, startup led, or is it a combination of multiple strategies?
0: Well, it may shock you that I'm slightly cynical. (laughs) <laughs> but um, I'm still waiting for one of the big ones to do it right. To be honest with you, I mean, um, some of the um, there's there's pieces, parts, and good initiatives. It's just so fundamentally challenging for a company that's under quarter to quarter PL pressure, um, and L pressure, and the kind of inherent efficiency inefficiencies that that big co's have in getting stuff done. I've just not seen anyone dial it in and execute it perfectly, and and I think we've also collectively seen that. You can't just uh, throw some beanbag chairs in the lobby, a ping pong table in the, <laughs> you know, in the office, and and free soda, and, and think you're you've you're instantly an agile startup. It just doesn't maybe,
1: work. Maybe some funny commercials, something like that.
0: <laughs> well, hey, you know what? Uh, I applaud. I think it's. Um, I think we, un- we perhaps we we uh, undervalue the digital transformation efforts that these companies have done on their own businesses because I think there's some real cool and high value stuff that's gotten unlocked. I think where some of these companies have faced challenges is trying to bring that external, right? To bring that more as a be a software company or a platform play. I I do applaud the passion and the effort, no doubt. But but ultimately, I think it is kind of an all, all of the above scenario, like you described. I mean, it's going to take uh it's going to take collaboration between the the people that are living these functions every day and the and the uh you know the i the i.t folks the people that particularly when a lot of the value nowadays comes with integrating with other line of business systems right if you want to if you're going to drive your your supply chain systems with more accurate and timely data well you're going to need to work with the the i.t folks in your company Increasingly, it's also like spanning company boundaries, right? It's not just, oh, it's not, it's not uncommon now that you have like a manufactured product that the brand owner may have contracted out design, the brand owner may be contracting out manufacturing. They've got a third party distribution network and a fourth party service network. So now the flow of information uh, is, you know, is across many, many boundaries. And then you, you were mentioning kind of the big codes. Well, you've got, you know, cloud vendors, obviously, and we're making some real progress. You've got the large classic enterprise software companies who, you know, they've, they've grounded out for many years. They make a lot of surprising, lot of money in, uh, in the OT side that people just don't know about. It's a small line item compared to a lot of their um, their software sales, but it's a big line item if you compare it to a lot of the startups in the space. Um, and then you've got the industrial automation players who have certainly you know been in the game for quite some time i I can't tell you how many uh, uh execs i've spoken with from those types of companies though that the light bulb just has not gone off or maybe it has but they can't execute on it how important it is to connect to other people's stuff right so so many of these vendors do a fantastic job of of developing some solution for for you know their software or their application or their hardware but that's not what customers want because that's not what customers have they've got this messy heterogeneous crazy mix of stuff that they need to bring together so you know today it's still a diy world right i mean 80 percent of the spends probably still do it yourself um anyway uh startups kind of have become the innovation engine, right? You know, you, you, you start, a, um, I'd have to be honest that, to say that I don't think too many enterprise startups and particularly industrial uh, software startups go in with the belief that they're going to be a, you know, a $2 billion company uh, that, that'll IPO there will be a rare few there's certainly the outliers I was I was blessed and lucky enough to be part of you know wonderwear early on which kind of uh, I think they were the first first public company in that space but um, anyway I you know I think that uh, they the the model will be innovate and acquire and that's going to continue um, which is why learning to work with big codes with cloud vendors, uh, to know how to partner effectively, uh, is an essential skill for you know, startups in our space.
1: Sure, and that, and I think, I think it is gonna take all of the above, working collaboratively, I think you're seeing more shifting toward the open platforms, let's get a startup community engaged with our own efforts. Because I've lived inside the big operating company and, and working on some fascinating technology and usually have on their product roadmap a lot of similar things. But it is going to take all all parties rowing the boat together, no no doubt in my mind.
0: Well, you brought um, up the, the ecosystem thing as well, and and, and that's that's a, another challenge that start like startups may well be the um, the glue that makes an ecosystem possible. Some particular technology, but it's very difficult to galvanize an ecosystem around a small company, right? So a lot of times it's either through partnership or M&A that um, a a big co has enough gravity to be able to build out an effective ecosystem. And again, I think we've seen that with, you know, uh, a couple, quite a few of the companies in our space.
1: Yeah, whoever gets it right, it's going to be to their advantage for sure. Maybe switching gears here, getting tactical for the founders out there who may be listening that have already or are raising venture capital now. What gets you excited about new early-stage companies entering the market and maybe a combo of any keys to success or even common pitfalls you see as folks are starting companies and scaling them in these ecosystems?
0: Um, maybe we'll take it like looking at what are some of the things that will help you be successful what may not. <laughs> from kind of a successful, I mean, it's no different than you probably, as you assess a company from an investor point of view, it's you know team, product and market, but also, you know, I, I think it's a foundational um, element you need to be thinking about is making your customers money mm-hmm. uh, and or some some measure of goodness or value, right? In your customer's eyes. I've seen so many pretentious companies that just um, don't, you know, for whatever reason don't put that first they get they get obsessed with other things or they don't effectively listen to their customers um, another key is visibility right a lot of small companies startups with technical founders uh, don't appreciate the importance of, of marketing and awareness and and brand building um, it's never too early to start that uh, because that's what's going to open up your opportunity funnel um, You know, adapted. It's kind of trite and and overused, but you know, pivoting, adapting, and adjusting. I think everybody thinks early on they have a clear vision of what their product or solution is, what their value is, how it's going to, you know, how it's going to grow. Everybody draws the hockey stick chart, Um, but somewhere along the way, you're going to get spun around. You're going to make some ninety and one eighty degree turns, Um, and uh, I I had to dust off. Uh, in fact, I'll put it up on LinkedIn. I did a presentation a bunch of years ago. Have you ever read uh, Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go?
1: <laughs> no, I have not.
0: Well, you should. It's, uh, you know, whether for kids or grownups, it's like, it, it talks about this circuitous route through life that you take. But so I tried to compare it to startup life and man, did it fit perfectly. So anyway, <laughs> I'll post that up. Sure. Um, Couple things to avoid. I, I'm really, and this is just a personal thing. Um, I, I, uh, I I'm not a fan of companies that overraise money or use kind of raising their fundraising as a measure of their their self worth or value. I think that's just so unhealthy. Um, so that, you know, that's something I would avoid. Uh, companies that have too much of an internal focus, again, instead of an out external focus. Um, I think that's that can be very very problematic or an inability to pivot or adjust out of vanity or you know whatever um, so uh, and the other thing is uh, team like those first few hires the, the first initial team that you build is is so important um, I, I think you know I, I think that that makes or breaks a company right the first five or ten people that join and a number of really, really bright people are entering kind of this industrial space, but unfortunately, I'm I'm seeing a lot of companies not bringing enough domain expertise in early, and it costs them, you know, 12 to 24 months in clock time while they come up the learning curve. Well, that's also 12 to 24 months of capital being burned, of opportunity being lost while competitors can, you know, catch up or, or join in. So um, that's another thing I do look for is companies that have an appropriate blend of skill sets. I think a company that was kind of all people with domain expertise would be a negative too, because you're not gonna get fresh thinking and fresh ideas. So, you know, looking at the makeup of the team. um, And then lastly, does that team team have an awareness of the importance of go-to-market? That it's not just, you know, products important, but that your go-to-market strategy, sales and marketing, and partnerships is every bit as important. So I, I like to see that as well.
1: And maybe to two of your comments, one about overraising raising and then the, the go-to-market issues, um, often talking with early founders or early stage founders in this ecosystem, cautioning them about being really capital efficient in the early days, going to market and, and finding product market fit. And, and really important to your point, defining what an actual ROI is, not just you know pontificating about it, because I think these customers are getting more savvy and wanting to know exactly what you said. Yeah. How are you going to make me money? Yeah. And so because these go-to-market challenges, in my opinion, vastly different than other categories such as consumer or pure database, database enterprise software, things like that. So the question here is, d- does the blitz scaling and platform before product mentality work within this ecosystem? Why or why not?
0: I just, blankly, I don't think so. Um, not so much in, you know, in our industrial sector. Um, the, simply, if for no other reason, that kind of the a blitz scaling model, and maybe I'm oversimplifying here, but it sort of assumes somewhat of a homo- homogeneity of your customer and the reason they're going to choose to buy or use your stuff. It's a, typically a very low-touch uh, sales process. And I know that's the mythology that so many companies in the industrial space are pursuing. They want to be low touch. And, and, and maybe we're making progress, but I mean, just the the variability of what customers do and the, the just the unfortunate normal dynamics of corporate purchasing processes and all those kinds of things work against that kind of rapid blitz scale, low touch Again, virtuous goals, I think it's a, you know, it's worth continuing to figure out how you can make buying easier, uh, you know, less obstacles, but there's people in the mix, right? So, there's, uh, it's, it's just, um, and, and processes that kind of get in your way, and it's a bigger expenditure, right? You're asking people to spend, you know, 25 grand or 10 grand up to, you know, millions and millions of dollars, so it's not just a impulse buy, so to speak.
1: No doubt, and and the risks in these production environments. Um, I, again, the, the scale of risk compared to some other ecosystems. I, I just think people have to go in eyes wide open of putting themselves in the customer shoes of why sometimes it's as challenging as it is to buy.
0: Well, you, brought, uh, you brought up one other point, which I think uh, I want if you don't mind, I want to just elaborate on. Is um, you know selling what's the customer value, and that interestingly is also a challenge uh, in that you can. It's not like you can go in and say um, you're going to buy this new light bulb and it's going to save you 5% energy uh, or, you know, some very concrete value definition. For the most part, a lot of this operational technology is is anecdotal, right? You say, hey, here's 10 other customers who had similar these types of returns. But I I think, you know, it's like, you know, it's good and you know it's going to make you money. But you still have to do an evangelical sell. So more customer stories to more concrete examples, but they don't necessarily always translate directly from customer A to customer B. So it is kind of a different storytelling process. It requires kind of the um, external validation sometimes right through analysts, uh, you know, media, things like that. Um, so it, it, I think that makes it a, a bit more challenging, particularly if you're sort of a discovery-based solution, right, where part of what you're trying to deliver is is insights and eureka moments. How can you possibly say what they're going to be in advance, right? So um, customers have to rethink how they how they justify um, expenditures. I mean, I used to do – one of my first jobs was uh, – um, uh, justifying capital expenditures, and the joke was, if you know, if all of the return on investment that we used to um, get the, uh, the appropriations approved ever came to fruition, we'd have like you know, we'd have more profits than revenues. So
1: <laughs>
0: we kind of we all fake it a little bit, but.
1: Um, G- great advice, and uh, I hope founders are listening. in from someone who's who's been around the block a couple times, um, maybe switching over for the investors out there listening. And we touched on this a little bit, but how ha- how do you evaluate your investments and in taking on advisory roles with these early stage companies? I-, I know you're very selective in how many companies and who you engage with. So what what are those things that get you across sure. the finish line?
0: Sure, and and you know, selective for me is a combination of uh, of a couple things. Um, just to keep time down, right? Um, I have hmm. lots of distractions <laughs> to keep me busy. But um, uh, for me, I think the number one thing is, uh, is it interesting, right? Is it novel? Is there something innovative? And, and just as importantly, can I both learn something from these founders and their technology? And can I teach them something? Is there like a gap in, in their team that I can help fill with experience? Um, But honestly, selfishly, it is about, is it something interesting? Team matters a ton. Got to be the right personality. Uh, You know, appropriate amount of humility on the team, I think, is great. Um, um, And then I I would say in general, it's something that has to be adjacent to my area of expertise. Uh, You know, I've had a few exceptions on that. But um, for the most part, you know, that's where I can bring the most value to them as well. So I don't generally don't go too far afield of um, of the things I've done in the past.
1: Gotcha. And, and with all of the deal flow you're seeing and and meeting these innovative founders, any clustering of digital innovation, innovation around where you you think there's a great opportunity right now to be investing behind or and then also what what are some overhype sectors that um, yeah. you wish would fade off?
0: Well, we'll go. We'll just write. We'll push blockchain off. You know, and you know how I feel about that. I mean, again, fantastic long-term opportunity. Um, but to think that current blockchain technology can function at industrial or IoT scale is just ludicrous.
1: Quick um, comment for anyone that is not following Rick's LinkedIn post. <laughs> I would, I, I would promise you, it will delight you. Or, <laughs> it, it, long story short, read Rick's uh, LinkedIn post. They're phenomenal.
0: It's entertaining, if nothing else, I hope. Um, so, yeah, same thing, you know, great. It's, and I think you chose the word, where's the hype, right? Because it doesn't mean there's not opportunity around a lot of these things. It has hype crest, you know, how far out ahead of, of our skis are. So, blockchain, augmented reality, um, some aspects of AI, I think, are just, like, we're too far ahead. The reality, whether for technology and the laws of physics keeping us back, which, interestingly, is the case in, in a lot of these um or you know applicability um it's, it's just being you know being grounded in how you apply these types of things so there's some i think again a lot of value being created but also a lot of hype and and everything you know you know this as well as anyone that um and i will be the first to admit that timing and luck matter a ton right being too early can can be counterproductive obviously being too late sometimes can be counterproductive so picking, you know, picking the right time for these things to be both um, the market's ready and the technology's ready, there's, there's a little bit going on, you know, a little magic or luck. I, I also tend to kind of shy away from what I would call me too solutions or better mousetrap. If someone's already done it, there's you know 10, 100 companies doing something similar, but you sprinkled some pixie dust on it. That's, that's cool. And you might do fine. And I, and I wish you the best, but it's not going to be something that's going to get me super excited Um, so, you know, I, I'd rather see the best and brightest working on something forward looking rather than
1: backward looking. Gotcha. Any, any white space stick out to you that is kind of that right combination so far? Anything just stick out?
0: Um, I mean, one that I kind of think is, and I, 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 it's hard to, it's hard to describe sometimes, but I do think the whole idea of data marks, right. And by that, I mean, Hmm. uh, or let's not even limit it to data. It's this cross business um, sharing of information, capability, functionality, in essence, kind of the, the fabric that's going to tie businesses together digitally. I'm not talking exchanges and stuff like that, but really how you know, you've know you got, a, everyone's got an increasingly complex value chain that needs to interact in, um, in, in closer and closer to real time and and those business relationships tend to be very complex and granular and regional and you got know, regulatory stuff and all that um that you know how you manage that and how you kind of do that that information and and sharing across those boundaries is hard um so just got viscerally i think there's there's something very very significant there um and I'm kind of always in the back. I don't have another one in me, but uh, another startup in me. But that's that's one I think is kind of interesting. Some uh, less interesting but very real areas are in security. I mean, if you really understood um, how vulnerable so many of the systems we use on a daily basis are, it would scare the hell out of you. Um and it's just a matter of time before there's going to be some big you know cybersecurity incident in the industrial iot it's going to be on the front page of you know the wall street journal ceo resigning um it's common right so it's not as interesting and sexy but it's very essential so you know i think that's a that's a space and a cool book just came out about the whole stuxnet thing so for people in our world it's kind of fun reading this you know, almost espionage book that is PLCs and SCADA and all that stuff. But uh, again, it gives you an appreciation how vulnerable these systems are. Um, those are probably two, two big ones.
1: Those are great ones. I mean, I think we all saw in the press, you know, the unsexy world of maritime vessels just got hacked into in a major way, right? And all of our 2020 Christmas goods are sitting on those ships that uh, have no systems to keep them moving. So I couldn't agree more on the security piece. And and that word around digital thread to your first comment, um, I couldn't agree more on that. Someone who finds a way to build those Enterprise 2.0 system of records and start tying that data connectivity together, but massive opportunity, right? Big challenge to do it, but couldn't well, agree more.
0: There's two that are also, I think, super, super cool opportunities, but are not kind of. I wouldn't call them white space because there's act, you know, there's activity kind of going into it. Um, the other one I'm a just massive fan of is uh, metasensing, uh, which is like um, applying. Uh, applying AI and machine learning to camera feeds, audio feeds, you know, to, to turn it into some more interesting measure. There's a lot of cool stuff. Com- uh, one of the companies I, I um, just got involved with, Edge Impulse, doing super, i have like some toys in my office here, but to play with. But it's like, um, I think that bringing this intelligent centers to the edge, using camera and sound is a fascinating place. Uh, next-gen robotics for healthcare, for industrial, A lot of cool things going on there. Definitely definitely an area that intrigues me.
1: So, Rick, beginning with the end in mind is a Dr. Covey phrase I I often share with founders as they're thinking about taking on venture capital and setting off on that fundraising path. Because it is a distinct path and there are things that come along with it. For you, why is exit strategy and planning important for these founders to understand at the very earliest stages of company formation if they choose to go down the venture capital path?
0: Well, I I, I would have to qualify that within the domains I'm familiar with, right? Because I never have done a B2C startup. So I, I'm sure it's sure. a radically different dynamic. But just because of that kind of MA machine, right, the, the way the likely exits um, – it, it brings an increasing importance to how you partner, right, or OEM. Um, so I go back to that. You know, does the team have the right makeup of people that know how to operate as a, as a you know small company in a sea of sea of lion you know, or a, in in, in the, the Shark Tank, right? So there, um, I think those skill sets are increasingly important. And the axiom, as you said, the axiom that you don't care about your exit. I just don't believe that you. It it's, should be down on the list, definitely, but customer value, number one, uh, you know, building a great company with a good team, number two, but it's important. And you have to think about that. And, and part of it, it does tie back with capital efficiency and resources because you know, real partnerships take resources. Like it's, I, it, I advise companies all the time, if you're going to partner with a big co, Uh, plan to spend, you know, $250,000 to a million dollars a year in that relationship. I mean, that's what it costs. Uh, There's exceptions to that, of course, You fight outliers in both directions. But the point is, it's a very, very real commitment of, of people and capital if you want to build those. But they're also planting the seeds for your, you know, your potential exits.
1: Yep, great advice. Okay, Rick, to wrap us up, Uh, Each podcast, I've got a few quick hitter questions where I'll give you the prompt and and get your immediate reactions. Ready to go? Let's do it. What is the number one thing you look for when evaluating an early stage digital industrial founder?
0: Hmm. I'm going to go back to the comment about um, and, and this will be a little bit. A little bit controversial but uh, I do believe some domain experience is important I've just it's lesson learned when they don't have that it can be a real challenge
1: gotcha what is one resource book podcast blog whatever it may be you recommend to this audience to follow in this ecosystem
0: mm, Um I don't know if you would say it's even just about the startup, because the one that you and I both like is Mike Rowe's stuff. So, I mean, that would be, <laughs> uh, if you're not following Mike and, and Mike Rowe works, you should be. It just, I I, I think it goes back to my original learning that you have to appreciate people and the people in this industrial system, the boots on the ground are the ones that make or break our success. And we need to be learning from them and supporting them with technology.
1: Yeah, I mean, Rick. Every time we talk, the human element is the number one part of this equation. And and so, Mike, if you're listening, if I'm lucky enough someday, uh, I will run the brand of Micro Venture Capital. Just yeah, his my 15 emails. He's not reached back yet, Rick. So I'll keep trying. Um, who is one guest you'd like to see on the podcast? Well,
0: there you go. Let's get let's get Mike on.
1: Uh, okay, we've got a goal, Rick. I'm going to help you. You're going to be on the hook with me here. Anybody uh, who knows Mike. There we go. And finally, what is the best way for listeners to reach out to you, Rick?
0: Uh, LinkedIn. That's I've, I've sort of after watching uh, The Social Dilemma, I've, I've been peeling back almost all of my social media presence. Uh, I'm a little bit of a privacy, you know, and not psycho. But um, anyway, uh, LinkedIn is definitely the best place to connect.
1: Perfect. We already put that plug. You will not, you will not, not enjoy reading Rick's post for sure. Well, Rick, uh, just again, sincere thank you for being our inaugural guest to launch the Hitters podcast. There's so many different tangents. We'll be able to run down off the back of this foundation we've set. So really appreciate you. My pleasure, Ty.